Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Finding Pleasure in God, as we look to the Bible of Psalm chapter 50, verses 7 to 15, with a message titled, What God Really Wants. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now. I first heard a peculiar message when I was a child in church, and since then, I've heard it many times. It goes something like this. God has no hands but our hands to do his work. God has no feet but our feet to carry his message. God has no eyes but our eyes through which to see the needs of the present hour. Now, I must admit that I've always been a skeptic. And even in my youth, I sincerely doubted that. See, I couldn't imagine a God who had both arms amputated, confined to a wheelchair because he has no feet, and blind as a bat and still, we would call that pathetic being God. It sounded to me like a very unlikely scenario. See, the same is true when it comes to serving the local church. I remember soon after my conversion, I, I was 18 when I came to Christ, and it was not long until someone came to me and said, John, the church needs you, and God needs you. And I remember the no-hands God that I had heard about earlier. All I could think is that if the church were dependent on me, the church was in a great deal of trouble indeed. Again, all of that sounded to me like a very unlikely scenario. See, one of the reasons why so many of us have not found God to be the sum total of all of our joys is because we've imagined a God who is needy, and such a being simply can't be the sum total of delight and desire. And still, I can hear the objectors now. Well, why then did God create us in the first place if he didn't need our fellowship? And furthermore, what does God want? Because you can't read the Bible without getting a very strong impression that God wants a great many things. Obedience, worship, sacrifice, belief. I mean, the list seems extensive. So let's seek to answer all of that in a way that helps us to see the greatness of our God and allows us to see God for whom he truly is and gives us reason to find in God the reason for all human joy. We've been studying Psalm 50, and we've noticed a drama. The human race has issued a summons. They're commanded to come to God's courtroom and witness God's case against the people of Israel. Because Israel is God's lesson book for the nation, we, that is, the rest of the human race, are invited to see how God judges Israel. Now, from that, we're to understand how God will judge us. Now, up till now, in our study of Psalm 50, we've only witnessed the courtroom filling up. Both the entirety of the human race and the angelic host are now seated in the viewing gallery. And with that, Israel is brought in. The courtroom is called to order, and the case against Israel now proceeds. We're leaning forward in our chairs as we listen and as we learn. The court case begins. God is judge, and to our amazement, he's also the prosecuting attorney. And so the case begins, and God is speaking. I'm reading Psalm 50, verses 7 to 15. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's quite an opening case. 
Indeed, it's a case that's so complete, no defense can be offered. It's a stunning beginning to the trial. Hardly has it begun when the entire courtroom already knows that what has been said can have no rebuttal. The defendant is already guilty before the trial has had time to develop. It's over at the very beginning. But what is it that's been said? Now, if you are paying attention, you will have noticed that in verse 1, God summons the whole earth, and that in verse 4, he judges not the whole earth, but his people. And then in verse 5, he specifies exactly who these people are. They are the ones who have made a covenant to him by sacrifice. In other words, God enters into judgment against Israel. Now, 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's quite a verse, and it indicates a pattern. When God begins his judgment, he begins with his people. They go first. And as scary as that is, that is God's pattern. That indicates why God sometimes judges his church, and we cry out, I mean, why, Lord? There's a world, judge them. But God is determined to root evil out among us. (laughs) I feel a sermon coming on. Now then, the appearance of God is terrifying. First, his names are announced, then his power is shown forth. I mean, the scene is riveting, and we can't take our eyes off of it. But as amazing as that is, it's equally amazing to see what God does in this trial, this, this great trial. The Old Testament, from front to back, is exemplary of God's dealings with the whole earth. What I mean is that how God judges Israel is meant for us, so we watch and learn. But just when you think it's all about judgment, before we're done, we're going to see it's all about grace. Now, according to Psalm 50, the judgment against Israel has everything to do with the law. And as we will see, the judgment will concentrate on two features of the law. The first feature has to do with the sacrificial system in the temple, and the second has to do with the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, God declares how he wants Israel to live. In fact, if I might, the Ten Commandments can be broken down into two tables of the law. The first four tells Israel how to love God, and the second six tells them how to love their neighbor. Then the rest of the law, that is, the rest of the intricate commands directed at Israel, makes practical for them, the outworking of the Ten Commandments in their life, in their culture, and in their unique circumstances as a nation. But please don't miss this. The Ten Commandments are God's declaration of what's right and what's wrong. What's right is to love God and to love our neighbor. That's what's right. It leads to the pathway of life, and what's wrong leads to the pathway of judgment and condemnation. And when Israel heard the Ten Commandments for the first time, there they told God all that you have declared we're going to do. And so they entered into a covenant with God, a binding agreement. But the covenant with God also centered around a tabernacle and later a temple. I mean, countless bulls, goats, calves, sheep, they were all sacrificed, always sacrificed, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. Worshiping God meant sacrificing to him. In fact, so important was sacrifice that on the day that Solomon dedicated the newly built temple of God in Jerusalem, we're told that in the initial worship experience in the temple, there were included that day sacrifices of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep, all in a single day, if you can imagine that. What a startling display of death, of blood, of sacrifice. That's why they built a drain from the altar down into the Kidron Valley below Jerusalem, which would run with blood like a river. 
Now, I know that some of us don't understand all the details of, of how and why this sacrificial system was put in place, and yet here is the summons. God entering into judgment of Israel around these two features of the law. And this is intended as a lesson book to the whole world. Come and see, come and witness, come and learn. Now, what happens next shows that God functions in four roles in this courtroom. First, notice that he is the great lawgiver, so he sets up the standard of the law. He determines right and what's wrong. Second, please notice that God is the great prosecutor. He's the one who lays charges against Israel for her failure to keep the law, his law. Now, thirdly, as we come to verse 7, we see that God is the star witness for the prosecution. And then fourthly, God is the judge because he in the end will determine the rules for the court and the guilt of Israel. We might also see that in this scene, there is no defense attorney. No one speaks on behalf of Israel. Now, if you entered into a court like that, I mean, what do you think your chances would be for an acquittal? That looks like a stacked deck, doesn't it? So what we're supposed to see is that in this courtroom, we're intended to be frightened. And just in case you're wondering, well, what kind of a courtroom is that? And who in the world does God think he is? Then know this, God thinks he's God. Now, grace would later dictate that God does, in fact, put his own defense attorney into court. And he will be an incredible defense attorney. I mean, John tells us about that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with a father, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, Jesus is our defense attorney who has never lost a single case. When we add his presence in the court, it's an amazing picture of grace. But in Psalm 50, that's yet for the future. That scene is not being depicted here. And the reason we are to come and watch is that from God's treatment of Israel, we learn of God's treatment of the whole earth. And so the summons is come, watch, learn, and pay heed to what you see. Connecting God's people to God's Word in our world today is critical. And Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld engages timely issues of life and faith so important for God's people to engage and discuss. Special guests each week examine critical issues that impact our lives and our journey with Jesus. So join us on Truth and Life Today by tuning in on Vision TV every Sunday at 1230 Eastern or subscribe to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel, or simply visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And send us an email at info at backtothebible.ca to let us know that you're watching. If you'd like to learn more or share a gift to support the ministry of Truth and Life today, or any of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We misunderstand grace and we misunderstand God himself. If we think that God is needy and that we, in our obedience to his commands, are in some fashion rendering service to God. See, the key is found in verses 12 and 13. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. 
Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? But what do these verses mean? What do they tell us? Well, back in 1977, a man named Leo Oppenheim, a man considered to be the foremost Sumerian scholar in the world in his day, wrote a book entitled Ancient Mesopotamia, Portrait of a Dead Civilization. Now, in that book, Oppenheim gave a very clear picture of what life was like for many of Israel's pagan neighbors. Oppenheim spent a great bit of time discussing the religions of Israel's neighbors, and then he spoke at some length of the fact that not only was Israel sacrificing to Yahweh, but that the nations around Israel were also sacrificing to their gods as well. But in describing this phenomenon, Oppenheim puts it under a title. He called it the care and the feeding of the gods. See, the general view of Israel's neighbors was that sacrifice met the needs of the gods and that the gods were hungry and needed humans to feed and care for them. And therefore, the gods were indebted to those who fed them. And then also we see that the gods could be manipulated to do what you wanted them to do. It's a kind of a symbiotic relationship. Now, seeing that this was the pagan theology around Israel, I got to assume, therefore, that pagan theology had found its way into Israel's worship so that many of the Jews began to feel that the reason why Yahweh demands sacrifice is the same reason why the other gods around them demanded sacrifice as well. It's because he was hungry. Now, you might say, fine, but what, what has that got to do with me? Why has God summoned me to watch his judgment against Israel in this matter? Well, let me take you again back to Acts 17, and I, and I hope you remember the scene. Paul's preaching in the city of Athens, in which there are temples galore, philosophies and religions everywhere. And here's what he says, Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, hundreds of years after this psalm, the pagans still believe that you need to serve the gods. Again, the pagan notion is still, to this day, being incorporated into Christian worship. So let's get real practical right now. Some of us are of a mistaken notion that God needs us. I mean, that idea of a needy God comes from so many different angles. Now, there are some of you today who believe that God created the world because he needed your fellowship. And so what we provide for God is an answer to his problem of loneliness. And as a believer, you believe your fellowship with God meets his needs. Some of you are of the mistaken notion that your service to God was necessary, that God needs you to get his gospel to the world. I mean, that's the idea that we are in some fashion making up for God's inability to reach the world on his own. Now, might I add here that the entire reason for liberal theology was that the liberal scholars feared that the modern world had made the ancient message of the Bible irrelevant. And so, an up-to-date version of Christianity was being presented. I mean, after all, we need to help God out and preserve his religion and his memory by reinventing his message. What's more, some of us today, when we're angry with God because we've encountered either sickness or death or financial trouble, we say to God, after all I've done for you, after all my faithfulness, this is how you treat me. See, doesn't that betray the kind of God you've imagined, a God whom you've helped, and God's lack of gratefulness has not rewarded you with what you've provided for him? And so God enters into judgment against us. And he says two things. And the first is, if I were hungry and I'm not, well, I sure wouldn't ask you. 
And if I were in need of anything and I'm not, I wouldn't come to you. I don't need you. I'm completely satisfied with being God. I experience no unmet needs. But why then is laws? I mean, why does God command us not to commit adultery, not to, not to kill, to love our neighbor as ourselves? And the answer is that his laws are grace. If you commit your sexual life into God's hands and never have relations with anyone outside of your wife or your husband, you're not helping God. God is helping you to be healthy and to be happy, to be honored by your children, to live a good life. Keeping God's command is not for God's benefit. I mean, what were you thinking? The commands are given for your benefit. They were God's grace, his kindness, given to you so that you might not destroy yourself. But then why the sacrificial system? An answer, it was given to remind Israel of her need for forgiveness and of her need for grace. And that, by the way, is why you are never to forsake the assembling of believers together. Or to put it plainly, that's why you're not supposed to miss church. God doesn't need your church attendance. You need church attendance. It's grace to you. Without it, you will quickly fall into unbelief and pride and heresy and straight-up rebellion against your Creator. All God's commands are not helping God out one lick. They help us. See, we misunderstand grace when we believe God is needy. In fact, it was Dr. Daniel Fuller who said, Our sin reaches no greater height than in our presumption that we render service to God. That's it. You have no sin that is more hateful than your thinking that you're doing something for God. Everything else pales in comparison. So then what does God require of us? Well, simply this. Look at verse 14. Here is the sum total of what God wants of you. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So here, very plainly, here's what God tells us to do. Three things. Offer a sacrifice of thanks, and then perform your vows, and finally call upon God in the day of trouble. I mean, those three things are what God wants. The first is to offer thanks. I want here to read a lengthy passage of Scripture. I, I think it's vital that we hear it. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 to 10. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from the hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there we became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. Boy, I hope you heard that. 
The reason that the Israelites brought tithes and offerings was so that they might never forget that all the wealth they had came from God. It wasn't to help God out, and we shouldn't think that our tithes are helping God out either. God wants us to know, if I needed money, and I don't, but if I did, I wouldn't ask you, for the whole world and its wealth is mine. I own the oil and the gold, and I have all the mineral rights, and the deed of every property belongs to me. I don't need a thing from you. Instead, offer to God an expression of thanks. Get on your knees and acknowledge this state of affairs. Express an understanding of who God is and his infinite resources and give him thanks. And when we give generously, you know, it's simply a way of acknowledging that God's storehouse is inexhaustible, that he is the one who cares for us. See, offering thanks is for us a pathway of joy. When we begin to acknowledge God's gifts, we find ourselves delighted in a God whose provision and care is felt in every area of our lives. Do you notice the difference between the person who thinks they're doing something for God and the person who thinks there's nothing you can do for God, but that God out of kindness is doing something for us? And that's what God wants, that we simply admit and recognize his activity in our lives. So join me tomorrow as we conclude this series on helping us find delight in God, even when it's not the light that we feel. Uh, John, a great message today, and, and thanks so much for it. Uh, I'm wondering right now, you know, do we have sometimes this misconception, even though we might not say it, that, that God is a needy God, that for some reason he needs us or he needs us for in some way to fulfill something he can't fulfill for himself? Yeah, that needy God is the pagan picture of God that all of the tribes around Israel actually held. So all of the idolatry there was always an idolatry of needy gods. And I would argue that it's very difficult for uh, believers to get away from that view of God. But as a matter of fact, all we need to do is think about it. I mean, God existed for endless ages before he ever created us, and he seemed to get along just fine in those times. And, and so what I'm trying to give the point is that whatever we think of our creation, our interaction with God, we must never think that we provide something that God needs from our hands. We don't provide him with anything, but he, on the other hand, provides us with everything. So all we are called upon to do is to give thanks and delight ourselves in him. Thanks so much, John. We look forward to tomorrow's message right here at Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you heard Dr. John's latest series in the book of the Psalms, Finding Pleasure in God? Well, if you haven't, or if you'd like to hear it again, or you want to send it to a friend, we want to send Finding Pleasure in God on CD as our gift to you. We also want to include Dr. John's series on Psalm 42, To the King, accompanied by a limited edition illustration of Psalm 42 on a magnet for your kitchen, your office, or shop, all reminding you of God's faithfulness. These three ministry resources, all free as our gift. Finding Pleasure with God, To the King, and the limited edition Psalm 42 illustration on a magnet. To ask for your free gifts this month, or to offer a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.